1: fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever and with fishing booker you can experience it too no matter where you are discover your next adventure on fishing booker this is dsc's untamed heritage dsc's untamed heritage is brought to you by dallas safari club conservation education protecting hunters rights ruger Rugged, reliable firearms. Hardity. Accurate, deadly, dependable. Tridgeton. Brilliant aiming solutions. Burnham Brothers Calls. Calling his calls made. Texas Wildlife Association. Working for tomorrow's wildlife today. Texas raised hunting products. The scent gods. www.trailingthehuntersmoon.com. The Hunter Conservation Website. Traveled today to Dallas, Texas, to the DSC office, and lo and behold, I run into a very dear friend, Miss Jan Cox, who's the editor, among other things, of DSC Game Trails. Jan, welcome to DSC's Untamed Heritage.
2: Howdy. <laughs> Howdy. I like that. <laughs> I was raised right.
1: <laughs> yes, you were, by God. <laughs> You've been an editor now for a while, and what, as yes. a writer for a while, Yes, too, since, so. since
2: we used papyrus. <laughs> yeah.
1: I thought that was just me. Yeah. Well, actually, I think I go back to when you had the little chisel in yeah. a, a block of stone, and yeah. you just kind of... It was,
2: Cuneiform. It, it, yes.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Tell me a little bit about what it's like being the editor of DSC's Game Trails, but... Uh, how, that, and how you got into outdoor writing actually let's talk about that first
2: well how i got into writing was uh in sixth uh sorry when i was 6 in first grade uh i wrote a book about my dog and miss martha white my uh first grade teacher uh, made a book out of it, and boom! I was a writer. So
1: yes, you were. I'm um, impressed. It took me a whole lot longer <laughs> to write my first book. I can tell you. Well, it
2: was maybe four <laughs> sentences. Oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, but I like the way that felt, and I always have wanted to tell stories and and tell people what was inside me. And uh, um, so, outdoor writing. I was hired uh, to do a job as an editor. Uh, many moons ago uh, for another hunting organization and just really stumbled into it and suddenly realized that this is what I'd always wanted to do. This brought together all of my love of nature and horses and, and shooting and, and all of the, the fun stuff that goes on outside that I like doing. Um and as well as sort of the life of the mind, you know, reading a lot of books and and distilling it all. and um, I taught. You'll edit all these pauses out, I'm sure.
1: No. No? (laughs) No. This is conversational. (laughs) It's like sitting around the campfire. You know, there's a short time where things kind of go. It's kind of like staring off into the fire. Pass the bottle. That's right. Pass the bottle and stare (laughs) off into the fire.
2: (laughs) Well, as I was staring off into the fire, I started to to go down the rabbit hole about um, how I went from teaching writing as a way to make a living to editing writing. And I love being in the classroom and I love working with people, but I can still do that as an editor. I don't have to actually grade a paper and then tell somebody where they went south with their writing. I can just fix it. I don't have to tell somebody how to construct a sentence. They can just give me the words kind of in a salad and then I can line it up and make it into... Uh, a sentence um, and I, I nobody in this room has ever uh, needed editing so <laughs> uh, I'm sure we both write absolutely perfect. oh without a doubt
1: <laughs> thank you for all the attitude that she's done to mine which I greatly appreciate it.
2: <laughs> but you know I really love working with writers because there's a, there's something inside them that they want to get out everybody has a story and I believe everybody has a book in them And so it's really exciting to work with first-time writers. But what's also exciting is to work with second- and third-time writers because they're on a roll. And there's just something about the self-esteem that that goes up when you see your work in print. And I'm delighted that I'm able to have such a quality publication and that people, people, when they get published, they say, okay, now can I have six copies? Because I need one for Mama. Absolutely. I need one for my Aunt Jean. I need one. <laughs> so um, so that part's very rewarding.
1: You mentioned storytelling. How, how important do you think the, the, the fine art of storytelling plays into writing?
2: Well, obviously, in the spoken oral tradition, there are and also in speech writing and that kind of thing there's a whole lot of traditions and tropes and and motifs that that you throw in pauses and you know there's a different way of telling the story but writing has its own markers for lack of a better term and um you can still tell a great story and the thing about writing is is that even though you start on the first page with the first word and then you end on the last page with the last word, you can still bend time in the story. And you can flash back or flash forward or uh, interject another subplot or it, it, it's there's so much you can do. And it is, it is a time machine yeah. um, because you wrote something seven years ago that somebody somewhere in Texas is reading right now and so they're they're getting a piece of you from 7 years ago so it it I don't know I just get all excited about writing because it's so magical
1: what do you think is the hardest thing for somebody that's really just getting started? And hopefully with this, we can encourage people to write. And oh, absolutely. I, and I want to get into that a little bit more as sure. we move forward here. But what do you think is the most difficult thing when it comes to writing for a person to do?
2: Uh, to get it on paper. Um, to, to just get over that blank page. And really, to get over the blank page, you have to get over yourself. Uh, you just have to let go and don't worry about grammar. Don't worry about spelling. Just get your story down. And as you put more and more words down on the paper uh, or the screen or wherever the Q&A form clay tablets that you're using, <laughs> All right. uh, the more you write, the easier it becomes. And it's kind of like any any kind of. Uh, you know sport that you do or yoga or whatever I know you're big into yoga so oh
1: absolutely you <laughs> can tell by the fact that I can't sit Indian style or <laughs> anything like that and I guess I'll be careful i say I can't sit cross-legged like oh, some yeah. some of the indigenous people did yes. let me put it that way so.
2: <laughs> But uh, I I happen to be into yoga, and that's something that uh, that I use with my students is or or my writers, is that the more you do it, even if you're doing it badly, uh, the better you get at it. And it's it it is helpful to have a coach, an editor, or a loved one who's gonna cheer you on, but also who's gonna maybe course correct you a little bit and say. Are you, do you, are you sure you want to say that or maybe help remind you of, of things like, well, why don't you put in the thing about when the Chevy broke down uh, you know at the, at the bottom of that hill and we had to push it up there? Oh, yeah, I remember that now. So uh, it, you have to get over putting words down on paper. Got to do that. And you also have to share it with somebody. And then I, I think the rest is easy.
1: I think so too. To me, sometimes the most difficult part is to just physically sit down and get the first word down. Once I start the first word, it seems like everything starts coming. I'll, I'll sit before I start writing and think, okay, these are the key points that I want to do. I don't write them down. But it's sitting down, okay, right, come up with a title, sometimes not even a title. But then I'll start with the first word. And once I get that first word typed into my Process whatever it is. Seem like the rest of them come pretty easily. And
2: you know, I have an observation about your writing. Uh, you often start with a verb.
1: Yes.
2: And an action word. <clears throat> yes. And that that's fine. That that's that's perfectly fine. Maybe it's an incomplete sentence, but only only the grammarians will care. Well, but yeah. you get right to the action. That's what. That's what your writing does, is it gets people, it pulls people right in there. And
1: to me, that, that's, that's a part of writing, too, is that you want to grab somebody. Mm-hmm. And if you can grab them in those first few words, you can tell a reasonably not exciting story afterwards. But once you <laughs> grab them that first time, they're going to follow through to see whatever you're going to do. Uh, but what about conversation, using conversation in writing? How do oh, you well, about absolutely.
2: That? Uh, you absolutely have to do it. Um, there are all kinds of ways to do it. There's natural ways to do it. Uh, There's some pretty stilted ways to do it, which might fit if the conversation you're having is stilted. Right, right. If you're having a difficult conversation with your outfitter, uh, you know, you can show that in, in the interruptions and the pauses uh, you can interject the the good thing about writing over say movies or TV is that uh, you can interject thought into it and in a movie or a TV it has to be somebody doing a voiceover
1: right but right. you
2: can you can stick that thought right in the middle of what you're saying you know like like uh, oh let's go on up that hill and, and then it, to yourself you go, Oh no. <laughs> what
1: did I say? I left
2: I my gun at yeah. the bottom of the hill, you know, or whatever. Exactly, exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah, that that's really interesting because you're right, you can do that and you can do it in so many different ways there as well too.
2: What so what's the what's the one thing you get out of writing that that you don't get out of anything else you do?
1: I think with me when it comes to writing, I can be more creative. Than I can if I am
0: in front of a uh, camera or in front of a, 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 you
1: know, I love speaking, and getting in front of a group to me is is a great amount of fun as well too, and I equate that some little bit to writing in that respect. Uh, but you can, you can be a whole lot more creative when you're writing than you can, to me, any other way. As far as description of, this, of, a, of an individual, of an event, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's very tough to do that, to really parlay to an audience in a spoken word thing unless you're dealing with a, a group of people that have a great imagination. yeah. But from the written word, if a person has any kind of imagination at all, I mean, you can pull that person right into the scene. You can mm-hmm. feel the heat of the Sahara Desert. You can, you know, the dust mm-hmm. is so thick that you can't breathe that you're wearing a bandana. The uh, mosquitoes are so bad that you had to put on a head net because of the fact that to breathe. It wasn't the fact that you're trying to keep mosquitoes off; it's just so they didn't clog your nose, kind of thing. Right. So to me, you can do those kind of things in a in a written word, or in words, a whole lot easier than you can even if you have it in a, in a very visual effect of going, Oh God, the mosquitoes are bad. Yeah. Know? So to me, it, it's that little bit of creative thing that you can do beyond pretty much any other kind of medium that I've run mm-hmm. across. Mm-hmm. I love to write. I mean, I, I, look, I look for opportunities to write. And one of the things I want to bring up is that when I started writing, <clears throat> things have changed. I used to tease with uh, Judd Cooney and Jay Wayne Fears and Jim Zumbo and some of the other old cohorts that have been dear friends of mine. When we all started off, we all used a big tab- a Big Chief tablet. And I mentioned that to somebody the other day, and they go, Big Chief tablet? What are you talking about? I didn't know Big Chief made a tablet. And I said, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Should I <laughs> pretend
2: like I don't know what you're talking about?
1: No, I'm, I'm proud that you do.
2: I think probably that, that book about my dog in first grade was written <laughs> on a Big Chief, Chief tablet, tablet. With a fat pencil. <laughs>
1: with a fat pencil. And that's where we came from. A lot of times, a lot of us years ago would write it out in longhand or print yeah. it on paper. Then you would transfer that to either somebody type it for you or you would type it. Well, before. that's
2: actually how I made my way through college is uh, I was a typist for various professors and they were going from uh, longhand to digital and I could type really fast. So, I, And I got that skill in eighth grade, so I don't, I'm not sure why I needed college. But
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I took typing in high school and I fought it. Because of the what in the devil do I want to learn how to type for? It. Right. And yet I've made a living. You know, I've been able to do an awful lot of things because I can type and I can type relatively fast. But we've come when I started, you could write a book, you could write a screenplay, mm-hmm. uh, you could write a novel, and that included you know, maybe included in the book, you could do an article, maybe a column, and that was basically everything that there was a write for a newspaper. Yeah. when you got past those four or five different things there were no writing opportunities like there are these days yeah it, it's it's amazing where we've come in that respect too and how much easier it has gotten compared to when you were typing and had to use a, an eraser tape or or white out to mess out and you know cover up a mistake
2: yeah. Yeah. So, have you ever thought about writing fiction? You said you like the creative side. Have I've written ever... a
1: lot of fiction in my lifetime. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, like, like no, been... in a book, <laughs> a novel. Not, not. I, I to... have.
1: I've, I've looked at that very seriously. One of the times that frames in the scheme of things that really interests me is the early 1900s when. When lifestyles were changing considerably at the time and and you're dealing with still characters who had lived the Civil War and there were still some yeah. things that were going on in the Lower Valley, some of the short stories I've written, I developed characters from that time frame. Of the early 1900s, having spent time with small Texas Rangers and mm-hmm. law enforcement people, listening to their stories and and some of their stories were absolutely fabulous. Yeah. And but yet I could by in the writing I could change them just a little bit, you know, to make them even a little bit more interesting. So yes, I have, and that's one of these days, you know, get past a few things, I'll probably try to sit down and do some of those short stories in terms of a, of a book situation.
2: Well, uh, I have a very, very good friend named Tom, and he came up with a business plan for me uh, a few years ago, and it was a one-word business plan, and that was "write." Right. And so I, I edited it because I can't help myself, and I said "write" often. So that's that's my current business plan, and I am working on some fiction. I think, I think every editor has a, a secret novel in their drawer, um, but uh, you were talking about writing about people who'd, who'd lived right? and bringing them back to life. What's it like for you when you're writing? Are you making stuff up? Are you kind of looking up in the sky and like, well, what would that be like, or are you like recalling things? that may have happened
1: with with me it, it's much recalling but at the same time not necessarily looking at the looking up at the sky but re- trying to recall the little details that made uh-huh. whatever happened special yeah or whether it's a person that you met why was this person really special and and maybe it was it's simply the way he wore his hat yeah
2: you isn't know, that the the, s- the, the the scariest feeling or the best feeling is is you know, when you're writing fiction and, and it's like it really happened it and
1: really you're happens. just trying
2: to remember it.
1: And what I've noticed in, in the short stories I've done and I've used the same characters occasionally again and mm-hmm. again and again kind of thing but they take on their own life and it's not like me writing. It's like they're sitting on my shoulders, saying, "This is how things happen. This is how things happen." <laughs> and the story just goes by itself. It, it's not that I'm thinking, "Well, I'm, I'm at this point, juncture of this point of time, I'm going to have, have this happen or this happen."
2: Right. But things just happen.
1: Yeah. You know. And it, it's really like the story takes on its own life.
2: I had a very profound experience one time, and I was writing a chapter about somebody and it, a main character whose name is Riley and in the middle of this scene with Riley I realized that oh no Riley has to die and that was that was my first character that I had to kill <laughs> and and I was in tears because it yes. was like oh was I like, I like him so friend. much yes, yes. <laughs> so it' it's a it's a strange thing writing it it it'll it'll put the hair up on the back of your neck and and it'll keep you uh up all night and uh when i'm when I'm hot on something I'm writing uh I have trouble sleeping or i'll I'll hope to get fall asleep and wake up when it's light but most of the time I wake up about four thirty. And then I go sit down and I write from like 4.30 until about 6 when the alarm goes off. So
1: I I do that a lot. I started doing that years ago before we had cell phones when I was at home. (laughs) And uh, the phone would generally not ring until 8 o'clock in the morning. And then it would ring all day long. And then until about 6 or 7 that evening, it would ring again. It's ringing now, but I wanted to ignore it. Uh, But what I'd do is I'd get up at 1 o'clock in the morning. And I would write literally until, uh, till it was almost time until the phone started. And when the phone started, phone call started, I was so tied up with it I couldn't keep you know train of thought right. going. So I did a lot of writing from about one, or one for anywhere from one to three to about seven or eight o'clock in the morning. Oh
2: my gosh! And I would do it
1: day after day after day, and learn how not to get or how to get by without a whole lot of sleep during those days. Yeah. With being the editor of Game Trails, we, use user collectively, we here publish articles from a lot of different people who had very unique experiences, what advice would you give to somebody that was wanting to? that was a DSC member, or maybe a member of another organization. And I know you're, ta- you're talking. You were talking about SCI a while ago, and I think you were talking about a, yeah. about an editor by the name of Steve Comer. Yeah, and part. I'm
2: I'm absolutely proud to say that that he taught me quite a lot.
1: Well, Steve has always been a dear friend, even though I don't get to see him. Yeah. But I've hunted and all those kind of things with him. But let's say somebody, you know, they're all of us, or a lot of us are members of DSC, but a lot of us too are members of other organizations as well that, that are very conservation oriented, as thank God they should be. What, what kind of advice would you give somebody that has been on a, what they consider to be a unique experience or something that was very special to them in terms of, of uh, trying to get it published either there or in these days now? There's so many different ways through the Internet to publish things as well, too.
2: Yes. Uh, the way that—I'll just talk about me. Right,
1: exactly. And,
2: and Game Trails but it applies to other magazines. Yes, yes. And the best thing to do is to write to the editor and say, I have this unique idea that, you know, we were hunting chupacabra, you know, in Narnia, and, and it was incredible, and this happened, and there was a blizzard, and, you know. So you want to write an exciting pitch of about... 25 to 100 words, no more than that because editors are busy people and we don't have time to read the whole story. And then if I shoot you back an email and say, do you have photos to go with it, then you know you have my attention. If I write back and and say anything else or if you don't hear from me, then it didn't grab me. So maybe you try again in a week. And say, hey, I just want to know, have you had a chance to look at my email? Or you give me a call, and most of the time I pick up the phone. If I'm hot on a deadline, I won't. But um, that's how that's how you get my attention. That's how you get any editor's attention is being respectful of their time. Yes. And also reading their magazine first. <laughs> it seems like. A strange thing to say but it's
1: not as far as I'm concerned yeah every time when I've queried particularly one that I'm not familiar with I will buy eight or ten issues yes good, and I will good man. Comb, go through the articles that were written the columns that were written and the photography and I want to come back to that in just a little bit as mm-hmm. well too and then from that I will come up with it with the story ideas yeah well. uh, I used to send oh when I sent editors queries it depended on how they wanted it, but generally I'd send them like eight or 10 queries at the most, <clears throat> excuse me, a long time just one or two, and I'd try to come up with, the, the, with a, uh, a line that I was gonna work, use somewhere in that article to grab their attention yes. to where uh, uh, whatever, I mean like when they said the buck was coming it, he was charging in from the rear and I was looking at the wrong direction and I couldn't get turned around quick enough, I mean there's, or the you know plane landed and, mm-hmm. and it disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> period. Okay. And then, then all of a sudden, the guy goes, "Well, where'd the plane go?" Okay. Well, if you want to know the rest of the story, you know, yeah, you're there you to go. Those kind of things. Yeah, and, and I call that well. it,
2: it's like fishing. It's, it's, it's like exactly fishing. like yes. fishing. And I, when I teach my uh, college students this, I, I call it. There's uh, the bait and the hook, and then you set the hook, and it, it, which is that's fishing. You know. Uh, And so if you just put those, and the anglers who are listening are are applauding because they they might be able to now write. Um, Anyway, uh, so you've got to have a hook, and you've got to draw them in, and then you want to keep them in. Yes. And I was just thinking that if somebody sent me a, a short pitch and one photograph, that would be... a a miracle because they know if it's the best photograph of their hunt and maybe it's not the trophy photo it might not be of the animal it might be you've sent me photos before looking uh, looking over your shoulder or looking through a scope at a big elk or a big deer or something like that and that's exciting that puts you right there in the scene like we were talking about a while back that you want to you want to put the reader right there and if you think of the editor both as sort of judge and audience at the same time
1: which they are in a lot of ways
2: yeah because i'm i'm reading for the readership that i have exactly. and i'm not going to put anything boring in front of them unless i there's other factors right that work. and sometimes
0: there <laughs> are sometimes we have, to have some
1: very drier type of writing simply like because of things that are going on in the world kind of thing to keep people informed a little bit there's but a little
2: bit of everything for all of my readers in every go. magazine
1: so. <clears throat> there you go <laughs> now you mentioned photography yeah it, that too has changed so much because i remember years ago going on hunts taking my 35 millimeter with uh fujichrome or Kodachrome and and setting up photos. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, slide film or even black and white and drawing a picture and saying, okay, this is the shot that I need. Hand the camera to somebody and they're shooting up pictures and pray (laughs) because we had to get back home, send them off to be developed, Mm -hmm. then hopefully out of the Hundred that you shot, there were two or three that were usable, uh-huh. and so very often when you hit it somebody else, they didn't. Even though you'd drawn a picture in the sand or on a piece yeah. of paper, it looked nothing like it. Well, and they
2: you, didn't focus.
1: No, the focus was off. I yeah. mean, there's so many things that could could get messed up back then. But these days with the digital cameras that we've had, uh, and even with phones, the the, uh, the the phones that we have these days with the camera that within them, they're absolutely amazing.
2: Yeah, I publish um, a lot of iPhone photos, um, and there are ways to manipulate the photo, and that's a whole nother discussion. Right, right. There are ways to manipulate those photos after the fact to fix them. Um, it's it's possible to do that, and then of course we have Photoshop where we right. can we can you know if there's a, a some barbed wire in the way we can kind of just disappear that. It's amazing
1: how all that works. To to this day I'm still in total amazement of what we can do, even yeah. with, with the little simple programs on your camera or on you know, just a yeah. regular computer these days of what you can do. Yeah. But uh, now of course
2: right. we don't we don't alter the photo to make the the animal or the person look any better. <laughs> but we just we just take like if there's a piece of grass that's out of focus and really distracting, we'll take that out or or um, sometimes there's a slogan, somebody, you know, has their beer t-shirt on, and, and so we just kind of help them out and take the beer logo out, <laughs> but not that I have anything against beer.
1: No, well, there's not nothing wrong with it, but <laughs> I, I agree. We, we don't need to be advertising, quote unquote, those kind of things, we don't need to. Again, what kind of advice would you give somebody that's he, he's going on a hunt? She's going on a hunt. What kind of photography should they try to get? Everybody's going to want a trophy pose photo. That's as much for themselves as anything.
2: Okay. Well, but let what me. What
1: style of photo and what should they concentrate on that you like to see when they start submitting an article with with photos?
2: Well, I have a two part. Answer, and the second part is a question for you. Oh, okay. So the first part of my answer is anything of interest, uh, even down to like signs uh, leading into the the ranch that you're going to. Uh, something, just something that catches your eye, and it doesn't all. They don't all have to look like picture postcards or "quote unquote" a, a photo from a hunting magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of our best uh, images are candid photos that are happening right. with people at dinner, around the campfire, if your lighting is good enough. Uh, we, we've, I've got a lot of African sunsets, uh, but people still send me photos that are great, that we can use. Um, you know, in the act of hunting, stalking... If you have somebody who is going along with you, if if one of you is is the shooter, then the other person can be the camera person, uh, which I realize adds to the people on the hunt, but that always helps. You've taken some really fabulous photos of me because you hung back while me and the guide went up ahead, and uh, so that's always, uh, those are always really nice photos. We like to show animals in the wild. So if you come across a herd of does or, you know, cows of whatever you're hunting, take pictures of them. Just because they're they're young or because they're females doesn't mean we don't want to see them.
1: Right, doesn't To me, that doesn't detract from anything. If anything, it, it certainly adds yeah. to, particularly for, if you can relate that into the story yeah. somehow or another.
2: Yeah, yeah. So the second part of my answer is, what advice do you give people when they have a new gun and they're going on a hunt?
1: What advice, That's to me, is to get familiar with that firearm. Uh, take that firearm. Um, whatever optic you're going to use or sight that you're going to use get familiar with it then go to the range and spend time to learn the capabilities of that firearm and your capabilities with that firearm it may be the the world's most accurate gun Mm -hmm. but if you don't get a good solid rest and know how to shoot from a rest whether it's in africa shooting sticks or here in the state shooting sticks or leaning against you know always take a rest if you can shoot it at the bench to learn what the capabilities are in terms of accuracy, then shoot it from a shooting position that you might have to assume when you're in the field. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you're going to, if you know the gun and the capabilities of it, and your capabilities, you're going to do well with it.
2: Now, you can take every instance where you said gun, and you can substitute camera.
1: You're right.
2: <laughs> because that's exactly the same thing.
1: <laughs> I had not thought about it that way, but I appreciate you I thought, throwing that in. The well, <laughs>
2: I thought you were being a good sport and just spinning that out, so that because you didn't realize or you did realize, but that's exactly what you do with a new camera: is right. you take it out before right. it's crucial. Uh, so take it out. Take a lot of photos of your kids, your dog your your sweetheart whoever they'll get sick of you taking pictures of them then go take pictures down the road or you know at the gun range wherever uh and then take them home and put them in your computer and look at them and look at them with a critical eye and think is this the kind of photo that I see in a magazine because you might be onto something you might have some kind of skill then you didn't know it uh i you might not know how to use your your camera and you might need to figure out how to switch on the little auto focus on there so that you don't have to worry about focusing
1: or switch off the autofocus sometimes too. yes
2: but remember your glasses <laughs> when you're taking photos <laughs> i have to do that now.
1: <laughs> well, I had my eyes worked on some time ago. I carry cheaters everywhere. Yeah. Again. But you're right. I can see absolutely fantastic at a different distance, but when I'm looking at the viewfinder of the camera right. or on the back of the camera, just see what the photo looks like is it is it in focus? Well, yeah. I can put my glasses on, you're right.
2: But but you can kill a deer with a, a three hundred dollar gun and a thirty thousand dollar gun. And it's the same with you can you can take a photo of a deer with with a cell phone um, that maybe was a thousand dollars, or you can go spend, or e- even a Kodak camera. Right. They still sell Kodak cameras uh, that are digital uh, that run on batteries, uh, double A's. <laughs> <They're>
0: right.
2: <laughs> and you can th- those cost ninety bucks, or you can spend a thousand on an iPhone, or you can spend a thousand on a Canon or a Nikon. Or you can you can buy a rig that's about six seven eight thousand, and you know in the end you're still gonna get that that photo that's gonna go in my magazine, and it's gonna be about the same size as as all the other photos that you've seen. So maybe that extra six thousand dollars or you know sixty five hundred dollars wasn't worth it. Maybe you just need a good old camera, and same as the $300 gun.
1: Exactly right. You know, as you were talking about that, one of the things that I was thinking about is, particularly in terms of digital, and this was related to two years of when I was doing TV, and I'd have a cameraman, and I I was editing and everything, and I'd look at a shot, and I'd go, my God, if he would only have moved six Mm -hmm. feet to the right, three inches to the right. The beauty of the digital cameras that we have these days is, I mean, if you don't like the photo, hit, hit, delete, but you can shoot that photograph and go, now wait a minute, if i looking at this photograph, this critter is here, Mm -hmm. there's a bush here, You know, if I move just a little bit to the right, I can greatly improve the the overall image in terms of the composition of it. And so Mm -hmm. to me, that's one of the great things about the digital cameras are the phones that we have these days.
2: Yeah. I wrote a a column, I have a column in Every Game Trails, and I wrote a column about a year and a half ago. About some uh, general rules for uh, taking photos and of course I can't come up with with any of them except what you just said that crop it in the frame you can crop it after the fact but look at that and if you've got a tree that's not interesting move a, a tiny bit and get that tree out of there or incorporate that tree in the shot somehow and the same goes for a fence post or uh, a person. And it, it's okay to crop people out of your shot. Um, you don't want to lie. If, if you're trying to say this is the absolute pinnacle of nature, there's nobody around, and you've got ten people standing around from, <laughs> you know, tourists par- or whatever.
1: Or line over here. and yeah. the, You know, the house, obviously, yeah. right there as well, too.
2: Yeah. But... Um, and also, uh, something that Steve Comas taught me is that if, if there's any old rusted out vehicles or tractors or farm equipment, um, go take pictures of that. <laughs> that stuff's interesting. It, Hunters it, it, and, and us us outdoor folks, we love that.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, I've used those kind of things. I used to hunt in the, northeastern part of our, the eastern part of Colorado, and a lot of those areas had been... Uh, they reported that movement when they brought settlers in and you got 160 acres and they built all these houses and this was back in the early 1900s, I guess. And a lot of them left old vehicles. They finally just said, the heck with this. This, We're not gonna survive if we stay here. (laughs) And yet we would turkey hunt in those areas Mm -hmm. or even antelope hunt or whatever. And we use those old vehicles or old homesteads as blinds mm-hmm. a lot of times, and it made for some absolutely fabulous photography. You're right. Yeah,
2: and barns and oh, yeah. and all of that good yeah. stuff. That, that's that's part of our our heritage. It is, so. and to me,
1: you can look. When there there was a time when almost all photography and publication looked very similarly. Uh, in far as composition, and then in the last several years, we've had some really great photographers that go, "Wait a minute, I want to shoot this from a totally different angle, you know, or I want to shoot where I've got something. I'm shooting down the a, a gun barrel, so from the backside, so I'm going to get real close, and you can just see the like the a fence disappearing into the yes. to the wilderness yes. kind of thing." And uh, shoot different angles. That's that's one of the things that yes. I've learned in the last several years. Is uh, like shooting a traditional trophy pose. Shoot from a totally different angle. Shoot from up above, 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 down below, from the side, from the left, from the right. Look at them. You can look at them immediately <laughs> instead yeah. of waiting for them to come back. Yeah, three you don't have to later. go to Fox Photo. No, we don't. So, and uh, again, try different things. And to me, photography, over the years, I've, I've sold a, a fair amount of articles based on more photography than the story. The story was, eh, so so. And, and that
2: uh, can always be fixed.
1: Yes. But if you had the photography to go with it, it made or that set it apart. And several times, and several of the editors I dealt with, I simply send them like two photos, and then in those two photos, it pretty much told the story. And then from that, we would develop the storyline and everything right. else. But uh, just just keep trying things. I mean, yeah, it's the, the writing to me is it's challenging. It's fun. Uh, And if you don't do anything else but just keep a journal, and one of these days, share it with somebody else. Share it with your kids. Share it with your grandkids. Share it with a a friend as well, too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think everybody has a book in them. You're right. And some of those books might be shorter than others, but uh, I just helped a friend publish a book, and he was— Absolutely shocked that he got it out to 200 and some pages, 237, I think. Oh, my gracious, yeah. And he's already sold hundreds of copies.
1: That makes it even better. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That makes it even better. Yeah, the book thing these days is kind of an interesting thing. That, too, has changed somewhat to where now a lot of folks are looking at e-books. But I was visiting with a uh, book publisher not very long ago, and he said it looks like there's a move back toward... One-copy yes. print, which I love hearing
2: that. Yeah. Well, I love hearing that, too, and you'll have to give me that person's name so oh well. I can
1: oh well. <laughs> send
2: them my manuscript. Uh,
1: actually, <laughs> his name is Mark <laughs> McDonald. Okay, <laughs> Mark there you go. Be, I've known Mark for years. He used to be the uh, uh, outdoor writer for uh, the Abilene Reporter News. Well... And he now owns a publishing company based out of Midland, and I'd have to look it up. I can't remember, but I will certainly do okay. so yeah uh, they they're doing well he, he just he just finished a book for uh for Gary Robertson with Burning brother game calls better to call it that uh I've had a chance to review a few of the chapters on and and write it forward for and it is they're doing a fabulous job
2: that's awesome.
1: So, I'll get you. I'll have to email that when I get back. Get back home. And get you in touch with Mark.
2: So, have I told you the story about how I feel uh, that writing uh, is a primal? Uh, no,
1: but I, 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 and you probably have, but I'd love for the okay. for the listeners to hear. It.
2: Okay. So, this is something that I tell in my my at the beginning of my writing classes, both for adults and for college students. The college students aren't as impressed with it, but um, it, it's a, a a connection that I made years and years ago that that gives me uh, chills, um, and that is hunting was all about the getting of food. It was, and so hunting is a primal urge, and of course, eating is necessary for survival, and. When I was looking at putting together some graphics for this presentation I was doing, I looked for photos of the cave paintings in France. Uh, Lescaux is the place. Right. And you look at those photos, and I was reading some commentary that some scholars had made on it, and they don't think that some of the... Paintings are sort of fantastic and, and the proportions are kind of crazy. And they think it wasn't because the people who were doing the paintings were bad artists. It's because they think they were juveniles, that they were young, uh, not ready for hunting kids who had been left behind. And so they were telling tall tales and stories about how big the 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 deer was or or the the woyzent or whatever right they or the were hunting or whatever
1: they were, yeah and or, or the, the boar think, yeah the boar or whatever
2: and uh so the kids that were left behind were were drawing these pictures and telling these stories and so see there go the chills so for me hunting food and riding are three of the most primal forces in in humans. Because we we have to record what happened. We we just have this urge to do that, and just like we have this urge to hunt, and the hunting uh, is leads to food. So uh, for me, luckily, writing led to food as well because I've made a living out of it.
1: It's kind of the way that I've looked at it. I mean, everything that I've shot, we've eaten, but that also provided. That provided the meat. All the other stuff came from what I was able to do through the writing to pay for the for pay for the rest of the groceries. Interesting. That's a very interesting concept. I think you're very right on with that too. Yeah,
2: I mean some of the some of it was recording what was hunted and what was was harvested. Yeah, but but those big kind of funky looking animals were uh, like the comic books for those for those kids.
1: That, that's. I had never really quite thought about it that way. Well, if I, you
2: ever look at a, 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 the front of a refrigerator that has five-year-old drawings on it, you, it looks like the cave paintings. So there you go. You're, you're, I should. You're, that and a right. cup of coffee will get me <laughs> no wait, I've got it backwards. That and a two dollars will get me get a cup of coffee. coffee. <laughs>
1: You know, I hadn't, again, I hadn't quite thought about it that way, but, you know, having had two daughters and then having five grandkids it would bring us photographs, I mean, uh, drawings.
2: Yep. And there they go up on the fridge.
1: I, I, there they went on the fridge. And a lot of those I've kept, and, and, and remembering those, you're right, they do, there are lots of similarities there. Yeah. Interesting. So. Well, topic of another book.
2: Or an, article. or an article, or maybe something. My column for. Let me write that down. <laughs> I get ideas everywhere, and that's another thing people can do: is just write everything down. Keep a little notepad in your pocket. I have about six here on my desk.
1: I used to do that a lot. I love to sit around with people and tell, let them, get them started telling stories, and then what I'd do is I'd copy down maybe two or three lines that related. Pretty much to that entire tale that they were telling. And then I would use those as, as topics mm-hmm. or as, as a sto- part of the storyline to develop something mm-hmm. from
2: mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah, I carry anything. To- sometimes just seeing something. You know, maybe you, you see a, a, a bird flying in a strange way or something. That, right. uh Or you, you see ducks when they're not supposed to be there. Write that down because you can use that in an article. Yeah. In terms of scouting. or I mean, there's so many different ways to play it. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. While we're talking, uh, it's Dr. J. Ann Cox.
2: It is, it is. I have a Ph.D. in uh, a multidisciplinary uh, thing. It, it combined, I combined anthropology and folklore, which is basically storytelling. Oh, cool. With anthropology, and uh, I studied food. I studied Mexican food for my dissertation, but... My background is uh, teaching writing and um, and literature things. So
1: we talk about food on this podcast every once in a while. Why? Why Mexican food?
2: Uh, I was living in Tucson, Arizona. And what I was interested in, see, you've asked a, a Ph.D. what their dissertation was, so yes. was, we've got another 10 minutes here. I
1: expect that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Let's see if I can give you the three-minute pitch.
1: <laughs> or the 10 or 20-minute one. <laughs> what,
2: what was interesting to me was the idea of authenticity and how authenticity happens. And so much of the food that you buy in a Mexican restaurant is not authentic, no. but we still want it. We still yes. love it. You know, the chimichanga was invented, but it's delicious, you know. Exactly. And so uh, tourism in Tucson is uh, built on food, I mean, uh, in part, because everybody's got to eat. So when tourists come down to look at whatever they want to look at in the desert, they go to these Mexican restaurants for the authentic, auténtico experience And so I looked at how that authenticity was constructed.
1: Really? That's good. So, how far were you able to trace things back as far as like um, uh, dishes or recipes or, or types of food that were combined to form these things? Yes, the
2: chimichanga was actually a burrito. And there's dispute about uh, the the burrito. They think came from food trucks, or that it was not food trucks, but it was from the burros that would bring food to the workers. Burritos, yeah. And and <laughs> and most of the people I know who well, you put you put um, stuff in a tortilla, right? And however you fold it, it's a taco. It's not a burrito. Right. But. In one part of of um, El Paso, they would bring uh, lunch to the workers on donkeys, on burros. And so I'm going to go get a burrito. Uh, But one day somebody was um, warming up a burrito, and they decided to use the fat that was the grease that was already there in a restaurant. And it turned out kind of crispy and flaky and delicious. And that's how the chimichanga was born. I'll be darned. And I know, I've actually seen with my own eyes, there are restaurants in Tucson that will keep a wok full of hot grease for frying up chimichangas. Just for that purpose.
1: Yeah. Interesting.
2: So, wok... Chinese food meats Mexican food meats whatever some made-up thing that's delicious
1: it's kind of like the fajitas
2: yes I, yes I, I can remember when
1: nobody knew what a fajita was and the first time I was introduced to it there was a little gentleman an old couple actually in uh, Brownsville Texas that ha- that sold fajitas mm-hmm. nobody else in that part of the world sold fajitas mm-hmm. and fajitas I get tickled out my wife, gets aggravated when we go to a restaurant because I always ask what cut of meat is it and because it comes from the the skirt part or the diaphragm the fajita yeah and anything beyond that is you can have their chickens don't have fajitas or shrimp or shrimp or (laughs) anything else you can have chicken that's flavored with fajita seasoning. Yes. Same thing with shrimp or fish or anything else. But they're not a true fajita kind right. of thing. So uh, my wife, when I, she'll just cover her face and look the other way whenever <laughs> I, I go someplace and ask, where do your fajitas come? Is it just brown steak cut up or is it the right. real fajita kind of right. thing? So, but it was amazing at, at, at a time that, that was the first time that fajitas had been served anywhere in that part of the world. And then prior to that, they were just cut up in little bitty pieces and used in, in uh, what we would call chili or, or uh, in ground meat kind of thing. Yeah, and but,
2: a lot of times the fajita was the sort of the off cut. Yeah, and along with the head and the feed and and right. you know some bits and bobs that they would were give. This is this is on the King Ranch. And they were given to the, the workers. Right. Or that that, that when, a, when an animal was butchered, that was the part that the workers uh, were allowed to take. And so that's where we get tacos de cabeza, tacos de lengua, and fajitas, which they had to heavily season because um, the acid, when you put citrus or lime or whatever on the meat, it it tenderizes it. Right. And Because the fajita, just off the cow, is no bueno. It's
1: buena. tough. <laughs> it's <laughs> tough. It, it really is.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so
1: you, you mentioned the King Ranch. I got to spend time down on the Norris Division years ago. I was down there for two weeks living in a cow camp. Uh, we were doing work on Neil Guy. And that camp was basically a tent camp. With uh, the local vaquero was local Mexican cowboys, and that to me probably was as close to authentic Mexican style food that I got to eat in Texas anywhere outside of Mexico itself. And the food was absolutely delicious. As was the coffee. The the coffee, what I recall there. We're getting off subject, but we're not because they'd have a like a big five gallon blue enameled uh, coffee pot. Yeah. To where, and what they would do is they they would measure so many hands full of coffee grounds, uh-huh. throw it in there, measure an equal amount of sugar, throw
2: oh, it in there. Oh, wow.
1: And then boil it until, and then they'd pour a little bit of cold water on the top of it, and then you would drink it, and it was almost a syrupy kind of thing. Yeah. And I finally looked inside of one of these enameled coffee pots, which was a five-gallon. They never cleaned them. No. So you had that that accumulation of of, of boiled sugar Uh and boiled coffee grounds all around the inside of it, Uh and out of that five gallons that was there, they may make a half a gallon or a gallon of of actual coffee. Yeah. But oh my God, was it good. So so it's amazing what you kind of run into in in those kind of situations. Yeah. Truly, truly Mm -hmm. good. God. Yeah, that was, I got to spend time on the King Ranch years ago, and it was still, they still had, you had to be, to be a foreman, you had to be born into that family of the local foreman. Yeah. And all the cowboys lived on the property, and, and now it's run like a corporation where nobody hardly lives on the ranch, and, and a lot of things have changed there. And to me, that's kind of sad because it took that that era of so many years of how they did things and kind of removed it.
2: But I will say, and I think you know Tina uh, Buford, Buford mm-hmm. and uh, she's an Eturia. and yeah. she's one of she's one of our best conservationists here in Texas because she really knows what she's doing and she knows how to manage her land and and uh, I've, I'm hoping someday to get to interview her. As a model for land managers, and so that so that people can see the role of the private landowner uh, in the conservation picture. It's it's Absolutely. really important.
1: That, that is a fantastic ranch. I, I did a lot of their. I started some of their wildlife management programs back in the late seventies, and worked with her dad, Richard, and uh, her uncle Danny Butler, mm-hmm. and their mother was Euteria. Mm-hmm. and uh so I'm real familiar with that ranch and and uh, Tina's been a very special lady as far as I'm concerned when it comes to anything having to do with wildlife and conservation in Texas and Of course, she was one of our Texas Wildlife Association's presidents a few years ago, but her family has done wonders in that part of the world down there, and that they to me you talk about an institution in terms of ranching and in terms of wildlife and wildlife conservation mm-hmm. that's her family
2: hmm mm-hmm. Well, maybe I can bring you that interview sometime.
1: I'd love to. I'd love for you to do that. Again, like I say, she's a very special lady. And I was down there not very long ago. I was down there on a uh, scimitar horned oryx hunt. Easy for you to say. Yeah, not easy. <laughs> I'll spit it out. Uh, I'm glad in, in years past they called them white oryx. So I'll just say that white. <laughs>
0: that's
1: easier to say, scimitar horned oryx. Kind uh-huh. of thing. But uh, they've done an absolutely fantastic job on that ranch with uh, not only the native game, but with uh, several of the species that are pretty much gone in their native homeland. Yeah, yeah. We were
2: hunting down there a couple of years ago, um, and I had the flu the whole time, so a lot of it is a a blur to me. But uh, our friend, Latte. He hunted a, an addax. Yes. And uh, and also a nilgai. And that was that was just great fun. Uh, the whole the whole hunt. It's just so fantastic down there
1: it is it was getting hot when i was there of course right now that's not the place you want to be in july and august or even the early days of september but uh greg simons runs the hunts on those properties down there through wildlife system so anybody ever wants to go on a really good hunt whether it's for native game or some of the 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 uh uh, exotic species if you will such as the attics the the oryx the gimsbuck the basi oryx neil guy waterbuck uh in Yala, yeah. <laughs> excuse me, and I'm not sure what else they have down there. No, they And a lot of hogs, too. That yeah. Is, that is one place to really go. And, and that a lot of that habitat is so very similar to what you find those animals in in their native homelands. So that's, I think, one of the reasons that they've done as well as what they have was yeah. the protection and, and everything that they've done in terms of, of trying to keep that those species alive down there and, and, and increasing their numbers. Well,
2: interesting stuff. Greg's. Uh, can we drop names here?
0: Absolutely.
2: One of Greg's uh, guides is Mike Lassic, and yes. he guided us on two hunts. And he is one of the most professional, fantastic guides. You know, so I mean, I'll I'll sing that from the rooftops. That, and and he's just he's just the best guide. He's calm. He knows his stuff. And he gets you on the animal, and then as soon as as the business is done, uh, you know he's all business and but but then you get to the fire at, at the end of the night and and it's story time and he's got stories.
1: Yes he does so no, I, I mean business.
2: he's just the he, he's the epitome of the of the guide for me.
1: I, I totally agree greg simons with wildlife systems and, and actually greg's come on board as a sponsor of the, of the podcast oh, as well well too. there you so, go uh but it, w- all those guys that work for greg are true professionals they know the animals they know that the habitat they know the uh the the local folklore if you will they know the history of those animals and of that property in most instances And they're just not just a pleasure to be around while you're hunting, but like you say, sitting around the campfire at night and yeah. listening to their stories.
2: And his Spanish just, is not not too bad either. Well,
1: I think that uh, Spanish may be his first language when right now, <laughs> like several of those guys are down there. Yeah. But, uh, super, super place. And, and uh, again, all kinds of story materials there. Just,
2: I've you, written about the, yes, you have. The, the hunts. And I think Mike showed up in... Uh, um, a story by another one of my writers, um, but uh, yeah, if, if anybody's going down there, uh, he doesn't he doesn't hunt all the animals that Greg offers, but he hunts a lot of them down there in uh, far South Texas.
1: Yeah, Mike is a rancher and a farmer that grew up in that family's been down there for ages, kind of thing, and just again, truly knowledgeable, truly a gentleman. But my gosh, they know that country.
2: Yeah, so. I'm happy to give him a shout-out.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Ms. Jan, if if anybody wants to to be considered to write for Game Trails or some of the other things that you're involved with, what is the best way for them to contact you?
2: Well, email, of course. Our lives are run by email, but um, my email is very easy. It's J-A-Y, like a bird. So it's J at biggame.org. And um, if you mention that you heard me on the podcast, uh, then I'll know that that you've already gotten the briefing.
1: (laughs) I like that. I I, I do like that. And, of course, big game, it's the DSC. If you want to learn more about DSC or about the publications that DSC does... You can always go to www.biggame.org. And I spell that out simply because it's not, there's two G's instead of one.
2: There's a lot of G's. There are yes. <laughs> plenty of G's. Well, no, but I, I would welcome hearing from uh, any DSC member who wants to be published. And if somebody is not yet a member, and I say not yet a member, I like that um we are member supported publications so we do for the most part uh, publish member stories but we have this new base camp membership
1: thank you yes which is45
2: dollars a year and really you get all the benefits of the hundred dollar membership except for uh, one publication camp talk which you can get online anyway so um, so yeah. Get, get, get in touch with me, and, and we can work something out.
1: Miss Jay, thank you so very much.
2: Thank you. You're the best.
1: Well, you're very kind, and I'm glad you're
0: blind. Thank you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> DSC's Untamed Heritage is brought to you by Dallas Safari Club. Conservation, education, protecting hunter's rights. Ruger. Rugged, reliable firearms. Hornady. Accurate, deadly, dependable. free brilliant aiming solutions. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, calling us calls made. Texas Wildlife Association, working for tomorrow's wildlife today. Texas-raised hunting products, the scent gods. www.trailinthehuntersmoon.com, the Hunter Conservations' website.
0: That was fun.